Ephesians chapters 1 through 3 is, a fo- is where Paul focuses on principles of the gospel, this great mystery of the gospel. And then in chapters 4 through 6, he moves from principles to the practice of the gospel. And so, um, th- this may sound strange, but a- as we're looking at dating today, we're going to be looking at the first six verses of Ephesians 4 in what the practice of living out the gospel life looks like. Because really, what does the Bible have to say about dating? Nothing. Right? So why does Phil want me to preach on dating? Because it's something that we deal with in our culture, that we work through in our culture. Um, However, really all dating is, is relationships. Right? And and so the same principles, if if you're bad at dating, you're going to be bad at friendship. And if you're bad at friendship, you're, bad, you're going to be bad at dating. And so when Paul's saying, here's the effect of the gospel on our practice in relationships, it's speaking to those who are dating and to those who are not dating. So uh, if you would look with me at Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called, to one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. The word of the Lord. So one of the things that I've been noticing um, uh, over the last several years is that there's a, a TV, television trope, or also a, a movie trope that that comes up time and time and time again, and that's this sort of tension between um, two people that are getting to know each other and spending time with one another, and then they like each other, and then they, you know start stepping out to like date and then step back and then step forward and it's like this whole back and forth back and forth and you know I, I think about um, I mean it's it's in the simplest movies of even like Tangle or uh, what was the one that came out last year the ice one yeah Frozen thank you uh, I'm terrible with English words I can never remember them but um and it and, you know and it it you know I just it, it comes out and and um uh, what's the hills are alive with the sound of music? Uh, sound of music, and you know where where Maria is back and forth. You know, like, and I, I saw Grease, a commercial for Grease on television, like, and that whole thing. The whole movie is like, oh, I like you. Oh, I'm afraid. Oh, I like. You know, it's like this whole back and forth. And then when you see on television, you know, you know that the the show is going to be in its last season if the couple gets married. Right? Like Castle, it's done, man. Once they get married, it's, it's over. Or, you know, I, I think back to my childhood, and Ospa begged me not to even mention this because I date myself. But, um, and who's the boss? When I was a little kid, I knew that when Tony Danza's character was going to finally kiss Angela at the end of this one season, and they were going to get married, it was like, oh man, this, this show's over. Why is there so much tension? Why? I think it's because it deals with something that all of us struggle with and, and, and feel 
And, and, and we, whether we're dating or not, it's like this, we have this, this issue of fear in relationships. And, and how do we know that relationships are worth it, but at the same time, what do we do? Because there's so much danger in them. So the, the issue that we're going to be looking at this morning is that our biggest problem in dating and in relationships in general is fear. The fear of rejection, the fear of failure, the fear of abandonment. And so I, I see dating situations that become extremely unhealthy or, or end in a really ugly way every semester. I, I usually think the problem is that both of these people are super insecure and so you know, each person is entering this idea of dating like they're dripping, you know, sort of dipping their toes into the community swimming pool, terrified that there's a shark that's going to jump up and bite them. And so it, it leads to a number of different things, like they become obsessive over the relationship where it consumes their thoughts, or they're terrified about being vulnerable and they try not to ever deal with or express their feelings. Or at the first hint of disappointment, they, they run for the hills. Or they, they never ask anyone out because they might disappoint the other person at some point. Or they, they take every comment or slight in a crazy negative way, assuming the absolute worst. Or they, they cling to that other person more and more tightly, thinking that presence can create security. Now, I, I can't look down on these examples of fear acted out in insecurity because I was probably guilty of every one of these at some point in any of my dating relationships. And to be frank, even those too young for dating or those with dating firmly you know, in life's rearview mirror, fear is still the number one outward sabotager. I don't even think that's a word, but sabotager of all relationships. So I'd like to say, you know, you know, growing in confidence is the solution to this problem, but frankly, it's not. However, I, I can firmly say that the passage that we're looking at today gives us, foundationally, the true solution to fixing our problem with fear and dating and relationships in general. Now, I don't like to oversell stuff, but I, I think that this passage really does give us the solution. So let's look at it. In verse 1, Paul says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. So Paul begins this transition from principles to practice with you know, the instruction to walk in a manner worthy or fitting of our calling. Now one time during seminary, um, Aspa and I had a, another seminary couple over named Dane and Stacy. And we had dinner with them, and, and we asked how they got to know each other. And, and Dane, it turns out, you know, Stacy will just tell you what, really what she thinks all the time, and it's awesome. And Dane is very guarded and thoughtful and, you know, parses each word that, that he projects. And so Stacy went right into it. And she said in college that Dane skipped classes and played basketball all day, and he was known for, you know, sneakily rebelling against authority and had... Uh, like a pet snake in the dorm that was against the rules and ended up getting out. And, you know, he ended up in the dean's office. And, you know, and he pulled Stacy and others away from their responsibilities into mischief. Um, and then they got married. And 
you know, Stacy thought that she had corralled a bad boy. You know, it was, you know, sort of this, like, hey, I'm fixing. Well, on their honeymoon, out of nowhere, Dane pulls out a pair of glasses. She'd never even seen him wear glasses. He, he'd always worn contacts. He pulls out a pair of glasses, and he pulls out his Bible and these big, thick theological books, and he just starts reading. And he totally changed that day, like the day after you got married. Like, Ospice changed a lot since we got married, but not in one day. Um, what happened? The greatness, the honor, and the gravity of being called to be Stacy's husband changed Dane's perspective and his direction in life. There are certain callings that change our priorities, that serve as a compass to guide our lives in an unlikely direction. Now, in order to see the greatness of our calling in Christ, to actually see how cool it is, we have to see with clear eyes actually what we're without. And so, in Ephesians 1 through 3, you know, Paul lays it out. And so the, the, the first thing that we see is not, is, isn't just the, you know, what's so cool about our calling, but actually the uncool. In chapter uh, 2, verses 1 through 3, uh, Paul tells us that our natural state is actually a state of spiritual death. And it's an active rebellion against God. And it's unaware that we're, like, under the rule of Satan and that we're children of wrath, totally unable to change ourselves from rebellion against God. And it also says in verse 12 that you know, we're, we are alienated from God, from the promises of His covenants and from the, the unity with His people, and we don't have any, any truly trustworthy hope in this world or, or, or beyond. And, you know, immediately when I, see, when I saw Spiritually Dead, I thought of the, the show the, the Walking Dead, you know, where it's these, I don't know, like zombies or whatever, like, you know, they're, they're dead walking. They're not alive, though they're moving and such. And the living, the people that are actually not zombies, are those that are just trying to survive, yet without hope. There is no hope, because hope is too dangerous. Just moving on and watching out for your own. And th- that's a picture, that, that whole show is a picture of our fallen world. Um, and it's incredibly depressing. But what if there was a way for the zombie to be touched and healed and to be made truly human? And what if there was more than just moving on? But what if there was true hope and a home? That's the coolness of our calling. What's God doing? Well, in, in chapter 1, verses 9 and 10, uh, you know, Paul says that um, he, you know, he's making known to us the mystery of God's will, you know, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things to him, both in heaven and things on earth. So God has an overarching cosmic plan of fixing this broken world by uniting all things in heaven and on earth in harmony by uniting them to Jesus Christ. And so, unity is his big play in redemption. We don't often think of that, but unity is God's big play in redemption. 
And our calling to be part of redemption thus means that we're united to him and to his creation that he's fixing. Verse 10, as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things to him, things in heaven and on earth. So what are the benefits of, of being called by God or being united to Christ? You know, so why, why is this calling so cool? Well, it, it's not just being part of God's big plan, but it's, there's also personal benefits. So we're redeemed, we're ransomed, you know, bought back from our slavery to sin and, and our destiny of wrath and, 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 and our, from our spiritual death through Jesus' payment. We're forgiven for our rebellion against God and our relationship to him is, is reconciled. We're adopted to become God's sons and daughters away from our hopeless sort of scrambling in life to get what we can because we have a loving Father presently caring for us who has you know, a grand inheritance awaiting us. And then we also see in, in, in chapter 1, sort of towards the end around verse 14, he says, and he sealed this calling for each of us with the Holy Spirit giving us new life and the ability to follow him. And this seal, the Holy Spirit, is the guarantee of this great calling. And so, it's not just you know, we've got God's plan that's uniting all things to Christ that we're a part of. And we have all these personal benefits of being redeemed, forgiven, adopted, sealed with the Spirit. But then there's also unity's purpose that Paul lay, lays out in the, in the principles of chapters 1 through 3. And in chapter 2, he, he says... We're made one with other Christians. We are made one with other Christians of every race, gender, and personality because Jesus Christ is our peace. And in this oneness, we, we together are, you know, as Paul lays out in Ephesians 3, different analogies of, of, of Christ's body. Um, so Christ's body, with him as the head, uh, Christ's bride, the two being made one in marriage. And we are, the, we are the building of God with Christ as our chief cornerstone. So together in Christ, what it all amounts to is that we are the presence of God in the world. The church, his body, is the actual presence of God in the world. It's weird. But that's what we are. If we've been called out of the walking dead and, and hopeless alienation, being made part of God's, you know, sort of uniting all things to Christ, and being personally blessed with redemption, forgiveness, adoption, sealed with the Holy Spirit, you know, our sign of a, an unshakable hope. And then this calling is cooler than everything. It's cooler than dating. Our problem in dating and relationships isn't that we just sort of lack confidence but it's that we give it too much power. Fear only consumes us about areas that are really important or significant to us. When we play Mario Kart, my wife doesn't care if she comes in 12th. She has no fear of playing with Coleman and I. It's not that big a deal to her. We make dating or a relationship with someone of the opposite sex, the coolest thing in the world. But it's just not. 
And it's, it's what Augustine famously penned um, as the disordering of loves. Um, he conceived that love was sort of this powerful force you know, that moves people like a weight. So love is the sort of moral dynamic that propels people to act. Like my friend Dane when he got married to Stacy and immediately pulled out the reading glasses and theology books. It, it, it was such a great calling. His love moved him to totally change on their honeymoon. So our, our problem with fear in relationships isn't that we lack confidence, but that in the hierarchy of loves, we've made a person to be cooler than our calling in Christ. Their importance, our love for them, has more weight than it should. And so we live in, in the fear of rejection, in the fear of failure, or in the fear of abandonment. And that's why Paul says, walk. Walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you've been called. Walk, peripateo, in the Greek, you are propelled to action in a manner that's worthy of your calling. So, the question for us is, the diagnostic, just from chapter 4, verse 1, is your walk fitting? In relationships, and let's say specifically in dating, we're going to act in a way that corresponds to our hierarchy of loves. So we need to ask ourselves, not just, is this sin or not sin, but rather, is this walking in a manner worthy of my calling? It's well documented throughout Scripture that sexual intercourse is the most intimate act in life, and it's meant for marriage, that the two literally becoming one. And it's a picture of Christ and His church. And so most Christians will admit that sex is prohibited outside of marriage. But then, they don't act this way in their dating relationship. Why? It's simple. A disordering of love. They believe that that person that they are dating is cooler than their calling. I know that sounds silly. But it's that simple. They believe that sex will fulfill the longings in their hearts that only God can. You know, I get, I get the question all the time, how, how far is too far? And, you know, I hate that question. Because we really should be asking, okay, this is maybe a complex question, but, you know, is the physical nature of my relationship with this person, while we're not having sex, is it worthy of my calling? Or, you know, am I avoiding relational vulnerability, making up for a, a lack of relational vulnerability through physical vulnerability? Am I subconsciously acting out of fear? Or do I really see the beauty of Christ and His calling on my life and act out of love for Him? You know, so just sort of, I end up exhibiting an appropriate love and affection toward the person that I'm dating. Am I being driven in a dating relationship, you know, or toward a dating relationship because I feel deficient? And I want my deficiency to be filled with another person? Or do I see my calling in Christ as the coolest thing in the world? And know that in Christ I have every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms. 
and have been forgiven of all my sins through Christ's sacrifice. And His, his sufficiency fills all my deficiencies. See, dating is cool, but our calling in Christ is cool. Christ propels us to walk in a manner worthy of our calling. So then the next question is, well, what does this practically look like in our relationships? And that brings us to verse 2 in chapter 4. And I call it the mechanics of cool. Verse 2, it says, With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. So, four things Paul lists out. And just as Paul said in, in chapter 2, verse 8, and you know, through 10, that you know, uh, it's by grace that we've been saved through faith, and, and it's not of our own doing, you know, it's not as a result of work so that nobody can boast. And so we are his workmanship then, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So verse 2 in our passage lists four positive practices that display the worth of our calling and the correct ordering of loves. The first one is humility. Grace, uh, humility, as I've defined it here, is the grace-given ability to look at your own faults and sins before challenging someone else. Um, it, you know, it's not because we deserve, you know, Ephesians 1 through 3 to, you know, like, hey, I deserve what God did for me there. No, we're not worthy of salvation. We don't make it worthy then by our actions. If, if you don't have the God-given ability to look at the brokenness in your own life and find infinite worth in your calling, you will sabotage relationships with pride. You know, you'll walk with demands and unfair expectations of others in a relationship, fearing that they won't be filled. Or conversely, you'll walk away from others for fear, you know, you know, I, and I've often found to be a subconscious fear in people of being found out to be a fraud or unlovable by others. And yet, Jesus knew every one of your warts. And rather than abandoning you, he pursued you to the point of your death. And your calling is cooler than dating. It gives us the humility to look at our own faults before actually challenging others. The second thing that he lays out you know, in this, the mechanics of cool is gentleness or, or meekness, depending on how you translate it. And, and it's basically a mildness that comes from strength toward the other person in a way that it makes them feel empowered because you thought enough of them to encourage them. How does empowerment come from gentleness? coming from our calling. Why, Danny, why did you say that? Well, one commentator noted, a, a worthy walk before God will be marked by gentleness, not by, and he, here's, I thought this was really helpful, a pushy desire to defend our own rights and advance our own agenda. Because people with disordered love are fearful of loss. <coughs> Excuse me. And so they're focused on control. So they withhold encouragement. In fact, that's the last thing on their mind. Encouragement toward others is giving away power. It's empowering. 
And it comes from knowing a calling in which we've been adopted as sons and daughters and empowered to be part of the greatest movement on earth. The uniting of all things in Christ and the fixing of our broken world. So in your dating relationships, I mean, I remember my youth minister saying to, this to me when I was like a sophomore in high school. Well, he was like saying it in a sermon and I thought it was ridiculous because um, I don't think I'd ever actually encouraged someone in my whole life. But he said, do you give 10 encouragements for every criticism? And I thought, I can't even think of 10 encouragements toward anybody else. But I, I, honestly, I think that's a fair assessment. If your ratio isn't somewhere in that vicinity, you're too busy focusing on control. Because the relationship is probably a disordered love. So the third thing, then, is, is that Paul lists out in, in verse 2 is patience, or um, as it's often translated, long-suffering. Restrained, you know, I defined it as restrained from policing their every sin because of a vision for the long play. Um, I prefer the translation to, um, to long-suffering um, rather than patience because patience in our culture is, you know, seems like a, sh- we use it very in a short-term way, like patience with the front person in front of me in line at the grocery store when, you know, we're in the 10 items or less line at Target and they have just pulled out, like, they've got like 30 things and then they pull out a book of coupons and start rummaging through it, and I'm, you know, like, that's short, that's patience, right? Patience, that's the short term. But the word in the Greek is, translates much better to long-suffering. And Paul here has in mind patience with the sin of other Christians, knowing that we're all works in progress. So in a dating relationship, do you have in mind the big picture of what God is doing in your life and in their life? Or are you just reacting to grievances that you have with their sin? Perhaps you're a watchdog over their every sin because you have ridiculous expectations for the person that you're dating. Or you are so fearful of hurt or injury that you're constantly looking for reasons to put your guard up. I find that to be the one that I see most in my friends and then in my students. But seeing our calling and walking according to it, we we get the big picture of what God is doing in our lives and then also what he's doing in the lives of others. And so it makes us able to endure their sin, not define them by it. It doesn't make us jealous. You know, it doesn't make us less jealous for the church doesn't make us less longing for them to walk more and more according to Christ. But it does let us not act like police, hiding in the bushes with our radar guns to catch them speeding. So then the the fourth thing that he lays out in that section is forbearing love. Um, And, you know... um, Bearing with one another in love. And, and really, I've, I've translated that or sort of defined that as making an allowance for and enduring their practices which get under your skin but aren't necessarily sin. 
you know, I, I owe this definition to uh, pastor and counselor Tim, Timothy Lane. Um, he did a parenting uh, thing at Eastbridge uh, several weeks ago that Ospa and I went to, and it was amazing. And, but what the, you know, he sort of laid out, look, your kids are going to drive you crazy. And I was just thinking, yeah, no, my wife drives me crazy. You know, and I was like, oh. And then, like, my friends drive me crazy. Oh, you know, like, and it just started going down the list of all the people that have little things that sort of drive me crazy. And I realized, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. God wants us to bear with one another in love. You know, what is that meaning? It's, it's basically bearing with one another in love is remaining engaged with them rather than emotionally checking out when stuff that they do while it's not necessarily sin, it drives you nuts. You know, a lack of prayer for a person that you're dating is usually a sign that you have either checked out, you're not bearing with them in love, or you're policing their sin, trying to control them for the, you know, your short-term benefit. And so, you know, you're not being long-suffering or patient in that case. So, the diagnostic here is... Are we living within the mechanics of the coolness of our calling? Are you overbearing? Or do you clock out? Do you demand your rights and their change? And do you need to control this person? Are you able to encourage them and remain emotionally engaged with them in spite of their weaknesses? The answers to these questions are, are tied to whether or not we truly see that our calling in Christ is cooler than dating. So there's one aspect of our calling that we've you know, just sort of merely glanced at um, and that sort of raises the level uh, of coolness and really puts us over the top in relationship to enable us to sort of be freed from the fear that sabotages relationships. And I'm calling it the core of cool. Paul explains in verses 3 through 6 when he says, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There's one body and one Spirit, just as you were called, and one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all. What is the core of cool? Here, Paul emphasizes that Jesus, in uniting all things to himself, has united us to each other. In verse 3, it says that it's a unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Bond meaning bindings that, that tie something together. And so our bond to one another, our peace with one another, is tied to the Holy Spirit that lives within us. The Spirit, he is our guarantee of peace with God and peace with men. The Spirit is a greater bond than our common interests. He's greater than any affection we could give one another. The Spirit gives us a greater bond than dating ever could. We're not going to be married in heaven. Dating or marriage, it's not an end. So the person that you date 
is not primarily your lover, but they are primarily your brother or sister. This bond of peace, therefore, should guide our relationships, not any hope of them making us happy. Why do we have such terrible breakups? Because people see each other more as lovers than as brothers or sisters. Raising our romantic love for a person or longing for romantic love from a person above, above our love from or for Christ and his calling in our lives. <coughs> Excuse me. And so it's a stronger bond. Then in verse 3, it also speaks of this unity as being maintained, eager or endeavoring to maintain unity. Unity is maintained and it's not built. You are already one. We're one. We are. Christ accomplished that. Unity is the product of the cross and God's work through Christ. Unity is organic. It's not put together like an automobile. We already have a same end. A same project. The redemption of a broken world and becoming more like what we were created to be. The reason that we care so much about Christians who are being persecuted and dying for their faith in other parts of the world is because we're united to them. C.S. Lewis spoke of friendship as two people walking toward a same horizon and after a while, one looks over and sees someone else walking toward the same horizon. And so they walk together. That's all the that dating is. You're already walking toward that same horizon. You already have unity. It's not something that you build. It's something that you maintain. One issue that I see in dating is that people begin to isolate themselves in this new relationship, pulling away from other fellowship. You know, they think, I'm building this bond with a person and I don't need others. But if that's your thinking, then you're lying to yourself about the true nature of your dating relationship. You don't see yourself as part of the body of Christ already bonded together primarily with Christ and his church. You see your sense of a growing bond with this person as the ultimate bond in life. It doesn't mean that when people are getting to know each other, they don't spend more time together. But what we constantly see, I think, is people that pull away from all other relationships into just one person. They're no longer your brother or sister, but they've become an idol. And you're distorting the foundation of your relationship, the unity that you were already given as brothers and sisters. Um, one of the things that um, sticks out to me so much from Ephesians, and it, it, was, it was great this week being able to, to read it you know, and, and go through the first three chapters and just have it well up in my heart and remind me of all these truths from the Lord. But the one that stuck out to me the most 
was um, how Paul talks about the mystery of the gospel. And it's that. For all of redemptive history, people wanted to know and wondered, what is this redemption going to look like? What will it be? And then in Christ, in his death and his resurrection, and then, here's the secret, the mystery. Gentiles and Jews, like everyone in the world having the opportunity to become united, to have peace with one another. Having peace with God. That's what all of these people were waiting for. And it, and it made me think of um, in college when I went to see, uh, when I went to see with a bunch of my friends on campus, this movie called The Usual Suspects. And um, it was like some sort of detective movie. But at the end of the, you know, like all throughout the movie, you're always wondering, there's this bad guy named Kaiser Sose. And you wonder, who is this guy, Kaiser Sose? I, I have no idea. It's, you know, and, and throughout the movie, it just keeps going and going. And you realize at some point, wait a second, Kaiser Sose is one of the people in this movie that we've already met. And we don't know who it is. And so about halfway through the movie, you start guessing at who is this Kaiser Sose, the worst bad guy of all time. It's terrifying. And, and then at the very end of the movie, all of a sudden you find out. And all of these pieces are tied together and it's like, Oh my gosh, this is amazing. Oh, that was brilliant. So immediately, like we all like gave each other high fives because it was before pump fists and um, our fist pumps. And we ran outside and got back in line to go watch it again. Because it was like now that we know what, what the mystery is, it's so cool. And that is our calling. We are the church. A bunch of people that would be lost, be walking dead. But because of Christ, we have this unbelievable calling together. In verses 4 through 6, Paul lays out an overwhelming list of our commonalities that unify us. The core of the coolness of our calling. He starts from the external and he moves inward. There's you know, one body, the church. One spirit that binds us together as the church. One hope and one Lord in Jesus Christ. And one faith in Jesus having been baptized into Him and reconciled to the one God who is Father of all creation, who created all things, who rules over all creation and works through all and in all. And we get to the core. I, I love to have illustrations that help to like make things seem more real. But one of the things that I've realized um, over these years is that the, I have a huge lack of illustrations of healthy dating. And I work with college students. So like, how do I even help them? And I, oftentimes, about three weeks ago, uh, oftentimes, this is going to sound funny, people like daydream about the future and like what they would love to have. I, I daydream about the past, dreaming like, man, what? I wish somebody had told me this. And I daydream about what it would have looked like 
if somebody had given me a secret information or whatever that would have helped me out a long time ago. And about three weeks ago, I was driving home and I was daydreaming about what it was. And it was an older man from my church. When I'm in the midst of all the brokenness in, in one of my relationships, saying, well, you know, Danny, you're a new creation in Christ. And then me being like, oh, yeah, 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 I can be forgiven of, of how I've hurt this person or, you know, how they've hurt me. You know, like new cre-. He's like, no, 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 no. You're missing what I'm saying. You're a new creation in Christ. And that this person isn't just your lover. She's your sister. I think that I, if I had known that more clearly, I think it would have changed things. What we have in common in our relationships is far greater than our differences. Our commonality. When we're engrossed in the reality of our calling, our fears of rejection, our failure and abandonment, they fade away. And we're freed to speak truthfully with one another, to be vulnerable to let go of great expectations because we see the other person primarily as part of this amazing thing that God's doing. Are you driven in relationships by this vision? Or are you driven in relationships by yearning for comfort? Or are you driven by seeking self-protection? Is there a stronger power than our desire to be loved by another person? The bond of unity in Christ, it's cooler than dating. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we do thank you that here in this room together, we are a bunch of people who have unity not because we live in the same area, not because we have jobs that are similar or because we all read Paul Bauer's articles in the paper or because we go to common places to, to eat or even because we're getting to know each other better. Lord, we thank you that we have unity Because of our calling. Jesus Christ, you created that unity for us. And we, as a group, we are a picture of you to the world. So we ask that in our relationships and in our dating, we would more and more picture to the world how great you are. Lord, as we begin to come forward this morning and share in your supper to be nourished in our in our hearts and in our minds through your spirit. 
we ask that you would make clear to us the beauty of our unity with you and with one another, sharing in your life, death, and resurrection. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.